the update on the printer situation aborted. It just it printed a, a page and a half and then stopped. You've not so been able to print. You're going to have to read off a screen. Yeah. Blimey. It's almost like imagine that television presenter reading off a screen. It's almost imagine like it's a, a job. What sort of printer are we talking? A good one. Uh, at okay. least the reviews told me. I see. And it's it's got this funny it's got this funny uh, habit. It's a Canon printer, and if anybody has a Canon printer, they may well understand this. I have a Canon printer. No, I don't. I've got an HP printer. I used right. to have a Canon printer. <laughs> so when you turned it off, what did it say? Off. It, right. Okay. So when it turns off, it says ending dot dot dot, and it sounds really sinister. Like I'm going to end you, like from Street Fighter in the mid 1990s. I don't think you should worry that your printer is threatening you. This printer will self-destruct in five seconds. If it's not printing out correctly when I very clearly make a request for it to print out, and I don't request it to do anything other than what I expect it to do, which is to print. I don't think anybody would suggest that that is me being a little needy. And then it says it's going to end me. So it maybe just is going through like a teenage rebellious phase. (laughs) Is is my printer a three-nager? Might be a three-nager. I'm slightly concerned that us complaining about not getting, being able to get a printer to work is definite signs that we have progressed swiftly into middle age. Oh, I thought you were going to say the robot apocalypse, but uh... that's that I, comes I think next. You're unnecessarily scared of your printer. It just says ending dot dot dot. It's it sounds like, like you've really got a really unhe- like a really unhealthy relationship with your printer. Well, it used to be healthy, and now it's unhealthy because well, it's what... just taken 15 minutes to print a page and a half. Explain I, that. I think the the question here is is what have you done to your printer? Or it's making judgments about the quality of Hugh's scripts. Possibly, yeah. <laughs> this is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, who was first on Match of the Day, and Rory Smith, who, oh, never mind, Stephen was first on Match of the Day. Quite he's, right, uh, too. He's cheering wordlessly. Which Quite is, right. Uh, it was a major, it was a major, a major cup shock. It was a proper cup shock. It was a, it was a huge cup upset. If Newcastle losing is, is an upset. Yeah, but there's a, there were a lot of this is dating this this week's episode, which is bad. But there were a lot of cup upsets that were quite hard to take seriously as cup upsets. So like Huddersfield beating Burnley is a cup upset, but it's not it's not really, is it? Because Huddersfield are top ten of the Championship team and Burnley are bottom three of the Premier League team, and there's not do, that much. Does difference. there need yeah? Does there need to be a wider gap between them, not just a divisional gap, but a wider gap of the amount of places that that division represents? So there needs to be more than twenty four or more than twenty, depending on where you are in the football pyramid. Yes, and also I think there has to be a degree of historical mismatch about it. So if who were Brentford playing? I can't remember. Port Vale, and Brentford beat them. So well done, Brentford. If Port Vale had beaten Brentford, that would, in one sense, have been a cup shot because Port Vale are in one of the other leads and Brentford are in the Premier League. But historically, it's quite hard to take Brentford seriously as a Premier League giant. And I mean that with no disrespect. It wouldn't have felt like a classic cup shot. Yes, it's a Premier League side rather than a Premier League giant that has been beaten. Yeah. The gap between Kidderminster and Reading was significantly greater than that between Newcastle and Cambridge. But Kidderminster beating Reading doesn't quite have the same Richter scale measurement that uh, Newcastle losing at home to Cambridge does. I did enjoy the Kidderminster upset, though, just because the... um... The, the, the winning goal was, was hilarious. Was in, just incredible. It was the perfect FA Cup goal in the sense that I, I'm not. I I don't know how anyone could tell if it went over the line or not. I, there was no sign of the ball. <laughs> I think more decisions based on assumptions and feelings should be encouraged, especially yes, in the cup. Exactly. I do get the impression that that's the kind of thing that we should be harking towards, not back to. Does does is it less of a cup shock if the shocked team 
names six children in their first eleven, or does that does that not do we do we kind of willfully overlook that? Yeah, because that was the other thing reason that, that the Newcastle shock was so sizable exactly. is that they yeah. went they went strong. Yeah, three, the only three changes, and those were basically enforced by injury. The other thing, that my other observation about FA Cup third round week, and this is probably something that we've touched on before in the in the yawning chasm of time since we started doing this podcast, is we are definitely now at the stage where no one complains about the, the FA Cup having lost its magic other than to say, and to think that people say the FA Cup's lost its magic. <laughs> yes, it's come full circle. It is like, It is the original straw man argument. I've not heard anyone say the FA Cup's lost its magic for about four years. Did you see the um, the terrible take, I can't remember who by though, that, uh, that there's nothing really particularly special about the FA Cup. The same thing happens in cup competitions all over the world. Why do we get excited about FA Cup shocks? I don't know who wrote that, but it sounds like the sort of thing I might write, so I'm going to going to defend it. God, I, I would love to hear the defence. The first answer the is, f- is that in those other countries, Stephen Wyeth is not first, first on, on the highlights, highlights program. I would say that you you get more shocks in the French Cup than you do in the FA Cup, but you probably get so many that they're less of a shock. The French Cup has too many shocks. The FA Cup maybe has the right number of shocks. It's special because it's the the day that the playing field is levelled. It doesn't mean it, cup shots do happen elsewhere. In the in the same way as whenever like yeah Burnley beat Manchester United, a commentator difficult still couldn't do it. In enormous respect for all of them, will will invariably say this is the sort of thing you only see in the Premier League, and it 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 really isn't like. Big teams lose to little teams in every country. It happens stress, all the time. Allow me to stress that I would never say that, Rory. Well, you wouldn't, Steve, because you are a, a man of great international perspective. <laughs> but lesser commentators than you would definitely say it. And they although, wouldn't get first on match of the day. Although Burnley winning at Manchester United is arguably a bigger shock than Burnley losing at home to Huddersfield. I would say that, no, it's not. Burnley winning, winning it at Manchester United has happened quite a lot recently. All right. N- not perhaps I take your currently, point. but I take your point. Funnily enough, if Burnley not Manchester United out of the FA Cup at Old Trafford, that would be a bigger shock than, historically speaking, it would feel like a bigger shock than Huddersfield beating Burnley. It would be monumental if Burnley managed to not Manchester United out of the FA Cup, seeing as they're not in it anymore. You, you <laughs> know exactly what I mean, Stephen. I hate it when people are kind of focused on facts and nonsense like that. Uh, Stephen, how many places were there between uh, Newcastle and Cambridge? Because that would have been at least part. Thank you. I don't don't even need to get to the end of the question. Uh, The food is... Well, we're not sure. The most pressing food-based issue in in the Smith household at the moment is what did Hector eat to make him ill? (laughs) Because he's not very well. Um, He's been up all night. And we're very worried about him. He's a little bit lethargic. And the big sign with the dog is, you know, if they're not if they're not usual selves, that's them telling you that they're not well. We've we've narrowed it down to three possible causes. One, there might be a dog bug going round, some sort of dog-based COVID. Uh, two, uh, he might have eaten something in the park, some sort of plant. Ed thinks he's been poisoned. Ed keeps saying, has he eaten a poisonous plant? Don't know how many poisonous plants there are in, in West Yorkshire's publicly maintained parks. <laughs> And three, Kate gave him some chicken that was a couple of days past its sell-by date the other day. I think that's unlikely because I think dogs are, are are a little bit sort of constitutionally stronger than that. Do they but have that is a robust, a more robust, more robust system. I mean, Hector, system yeah. Hector is a delicate flower. To be fair, if our audience would send him their best wishes, that would be much appreciated. It would mean a lot to him. He does listen to the podcast as it's being recorded, and in fact, 
the fact that he can hear all three of us talking can be measured by the fact that I did a TV thing the other day in, in which Chris Sutton was involved. And obviously Hector also sits in, in his little spot on, on my sofa and listens to me as I do the radio with, with Chris. And Kate and Ed were watching it. And Hector perked up when I spoke, but he also perked up when Chris Sutton spoke. <laughs> and that can't be because of the content of what Chris Sutton was saying, because Hector <laughs> would de- disagree with it vehemently. It must be to do with the familiarity of his voice. Well, if, if there's anything that we can do over the course of the next few minutes to, to ease his woes, then we will do so. And, and Hector being a delicate flower, obviously, is all down to nurture, not nature. So um, take uh, a long, hard look at yourself. A little bit of both, I would say, on that one. I'm not entirely guilty. The football is something like this. Is the game too Eurocentric? The Africa Cup of Nations has begun with a lot of people averting their gaze from their own navels for just long enough to complain about it being in January. Not everybody runs their season from August to May, yeah? So get over it. Uh, you can get in touch with the podcast. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. Our first missive is from Dila Hasner. Hi, guys, she says. Just wanted to let you know how happy I was when Stephen came on first in the match of the day FA Cup highlights on Saturday. A sentiment I'm sure is shared by all SPM listeners. Well, we are very much shoving it down their throats. So if they didn't know then, they do now. Uh, thanks to Cambridge United beating Newcastle. 41 places between them, would you believe? Nevertheless, something didn't feel right. Steve at Newcastle and not Burnley. What's happening? True. Anyway, I would also like to personally thank Rory for his hatred towards NFTs which as mm. we have discovered um, are non-fungible tokens, uh, which I've heard him express over several different platforms in the past few weeks. I think that energy is what put me on a date with a guy last weekend who originally said that he does crypto, but turned out to sell slash buy NFTs for a living. So I had to listen to him talk about that all evening. I now know way too much about NFTs. So thanks, Rory. Hang on, I'm confused. So was the date a success or not? Probably not, but she, she felt like that she wanted to go on a date with a guy who does crypto on account of the fact that you had introduced the topic to her life. And so it propelled her towards taking that next step with a gentleman who apparently uh, just delivered a little bit too much information. I, I think that maybe I haven't made, made my total disdain for NFTs clear enough in that case, because that should have been a massive red flag. Well, maybe she wanted to take your views into that conversation. Possibly, so that yeah. It could be a, more of a to and a fro convince some sort of nihilistic bro that he wasn't democratising money. Uh, Buffalo Ewan Haig is next. Dear Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, I'm sorry that I've not written for a while, been busy at work and then travelling for Christmas. Anyway, you've been on a bit of a squirrelsome roll these past few episodes with quite a few topics of interest being discussed. I was going to chime in on the hassles of multiple COVID tests, having taken three on December the 30th alone, or on the winter break, as the games I was hoping to see in Scotland after Christmas were cancelled. Then there are the ongoing examples of the uh, wonderful football-related poetry to which I was very tempted to contribute, and the controversial discussion of American versus UK pronunciations. But what provoked me to send you a note was something that Rory said in SPM 264, with which I completely agree. Oh, good. Let the washing up drip dry. Much to the frustration of my spouse, who is no doubt in the pay of corporate big dish towel, and suggests that I should do the drying, I construct extravagant, carefully balanced sculptures of clean, rinsed pots and pans, and then let nature do the rest. An yeah. image from yesterday evening is attached for your reference. Keep up the good work and all the best. That's Ewan Haig from Chicago. I've sent it to you, and Rory, I do believe that you are, in fact, impressed. Uh, yeah, no, that is a... That is a um... It's it's a fine monument, both to man's ingenuity and the sheer, raw, unrelenting power of air. 
I'm slightly concerned about what happens if that wok at the front tumbles, oh, but... especially with a particularly large knife uh, right next to it. I think, to be honest, Steve, you're not drip drying properly if there's not some element of peril. <laughs> Uh, we uh, we will post that picture uh, on at set piece many because frankly we want you all to chime in uh, with all those elements of peril related oh, come to on. Drip we, drying. We all think this, and we all take great pride in in putting the, the the washed dishes on a on a surface and not having to and and making them all balanced. I mean, Ewan's at a level that I can't hope to achieve, but the, there is a source of enormous pride in thinking I have made all this balance and now I don't have to do the drying up. But that, that takes time, though, doesn't it? And practice, and and, and, and research to be able to, to yeah, pull off a sculpture the amount of time, like that. Exactly, that you could have just taken drying it up in the first place. I actually think that maybe Ewan has washed more pots and pans there than he required for dinner, just to Possibly. make it look more impressive. <laughs> it, could, it could be a four-day effort, let's remember that. Um, this one comes from Chris Etchingham. Dear Max, Barry, Barney and Philippe, long-time listener and hopefully third-time reader-outer, that and the fact that one of my emails being read out became an episode for discussion, that's SPM 164, do footballers like playing as much as amateur? fingers very crossed gives me buffalo status if you ask chris you never get thinking back to spm 261 and being at the game versus watching from home i want to give voice to those of us who prefer to watch games at home at home i can lie down on my sofa and watch tv i don't have to drive my car pay park pay for parking and walk a long way to watch it i can watch it peacefully on my own but with twitter on so i feel like i'm watching it with others i can help myself to whatever food i want from my fridge and not buy something that makes me feel ripped off google stevenage cheesy chips for evidence i can have a beer in sight of the pitch and perhaps most importantly it will never rain on me i don't have to travel home afterwards i can be in bed at a reasonable time and i can have the central heating on watching the game in person is fun but it is a huge amount of effort, one that I really don't want to invest in when I can have my creature comforts at home. Incidentally, I always listen to my podcasts on 1.5 speed so I can listen to as many as I can. Last night I was travelling in my car and Rory was on the radio. To hear him at normal speed for the first time was really bizarre and he just sounded really sad and a bit tired. Love the pod and keep up the fabulous work. That's from Chris Etchingham. To be fair, a bit sad and really tired is very much the kind of look I'm going for. You don't I think have to the... apply it to your wardrobe though, Rory. I think ah. I think those are all valid points. I don't necessarily share them, but what, what I do share is, you know, the safe standing debate, the desire to get safe standing into, into stadiums, which I totally understand and which, which is, is, I think, sensible. And as long as everybody's safe, then I think it's probably time that we introduced it. But there is part of me that thinks I would not want to stand up for 90 minutes. That strikes me as being something that I would find uncomfortable to stand I, up for 90 minutes. I like to sit. I recently stood up for 90 minutes in an away end at a game. And I reckon 70 minutes would have been okay. But there was 20 minutes or so of the game where I'd have been quite happy to just sit down. Yeah. I think People like sitting. Yeah. You need to have enough nervous energy to be able to propel you through the inevitable back pain that... Uh, that people our age, whether we're having a midlife crisis or not, um, get. And finally, David Jewett has emailed something that fills our new amateur poetry slot. Oh, Hi, folks. Please find below an attempt at a limerick. Somebody needs to write poetry to reflect Rory's disdain for amateur poetry. All poetry. All poetry, not just amateur poetry. Uh, here is David's effort. There were once four, and we, and we should say, bearing in mind that all our limericks so far have come from Bryn, um, and we're grateful to Bryn. Bryn Griffiths, I think his name is. Uh, and, and I might be getting that wrong because I got our uh, Buffalo watcher, John Billingham, wrong last week because I called him Billington. So it could be Bryn Griffiths. It could be anything. But 
they haven't been great from Bryn. I think you will. <laughs> I think you will agree to that. So David, at least I think, has scanned it properly. So Rory, raise your expectations. There were once four fine podding chaps, only one of whom had England caps. Rory spoke the most with the listeners engrossed, while the other three squeezed in the gaps. The second line is too long. Only one of whom had England caps. Uh, wishing you all a peaceful 2022. That's from David Jewett. Thank you, David. Correspondence and poetry of any kind, of any kind, to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Correspondence, yes. Poetry, no. That I just want to make it abundantly clear that, that that was quite a good limerick. Well done. I do not endorse the use of poetry on this podcast. Uh, now, very rarely do stars align in such a serendipitous way as they have this week. When I'm either super busy or super lazy, I do one of two things. I crowdsource for a subject via our WhatsApp group, or indeed turn to the suggestions made by listeners. Both have equal value. So imagine my delight when Rory, Stephen and Ahmed Youssef combined to produce this week's topic. Considering two of the contributions were shared in a total of about 30 words on a WhatsApp, here's Ahmed who put more effort into it. Hi Hugh, Steve, Rory and Chinch. I wonder if this is worth a larger chat on the state of football, especially as we approach a World Cup year. Over the past few weeks, we've had the European Clubs Association, pundits, journalists and individual European clubs talk about the African Cup of Nations being an inconvenience because it's in the middle of the European, he has in brackets and bold, season, and that it's unsafe as Omicron spreads through the world. I don't need to go into the Euro coming in the middle of the Delta outbreak and being in 11 different countries, but still, we've seen calls to postpone it, to hold players back and journalists question players like Sebastian Allaire and others about why they're going. It's clear that a number of European football actors have tried to make sure that the AFCON does not go ahead, or if it does, without hurting European football clubs. Firstly, the language used to describe Akon coming in the middle of the season is in itself problematic. Whose season is it in the middle of? A number of Asian, South American and African leagues are played on a completely different calendar. European football is important. It has the biggest and best in it. But when do we begin to appreciate that football does not begin and end in Europe and that Europe needs stars from the African continent who they usually first get to see in a serious tournament at AFCON? So what do we need to do to begin to look beyond European football? I'm not expecting people to begin to consume the African Champions League, for example, but we need to end this biannual AFCON chat that tries to chip away at a tournament decades older than the Euros. Football should be for everyone. And if the club game is increasingly gone to the elite few, we need to ensure that international football's continental tournaments like AFCON are kept safe and Africa's stars aren't forced to choose between upsetting their club or missing out on representing their country. And one last point. It's important to remember it's a different thing for many of these footballers representing their countries than, say, in Europe. It's in their parents' or grandparents' lifetimes that their homes were under colonial rule, and we don't need Europe dictating how African football operates, repeating those legacies of the past. P.S. If this does become an episode, that's surely Buffalo status-worthy. Ahmed, if you ask, you don't get. Anyway, hope you all are well and keeping safe. That is from Ahmed Youssef. And to distill it down to something a little pithier, perhaps using a WhatsApp message or two, how can we make the football calendar work for everyone rather than just Western Europe? Or is football too Eurocentric? I was, I was just going to start by saying, isn't it a shame that Ahmed didn't follow the old Coco Chanel philosophy of taking off the last thing that you put on? If he'd left the final sentence <laughs> of his email, he would be a buffalo. That's true, Does, because the, 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 the penultimate sentence, the, the, the sort of the, right, the righteous and rightful dismissal of Europe trying to dictate to Africa when it can and should play its games and with which players is absolutely spot on. There isn't, there's no question that, that Europe overreaches, the club game in particular in Europe overreaches in terms of trying to dictate who can and can't play where. And maybe 
we we tend now to impose our own slight disdain for patriotism and for the idea that playing for your country is the ultimate honour, which is partly to do with how how powerful the club game is, but also I think it's to do with with how Europe sees a lot of those traits. We try to impose that on the rest of the world. There is this is a difficult thing to express. I think there is a degree of misrepresentation in terms of the European club's attitudes to AFCON. I don't think they are dismissive dismissive of it because it is Africa. I think that if they were staged in the Copper America in the middle of the European season, it would be the same. Or if they stayed staged the Asian the Asian Championships in the middle of the season, it would be the same. And the evidence for that is that they quite often don't want under twenty one players to go to the to major under under twenty one finals. They're very unhappy about it, and they do they do all they can to squirm out of it. And that's a UEFA competition. I, I don't think it's I don't think it's an inherently it's not necessarily for me to 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 proclaim it one way or the other i don't think there is a racism to it that they're looking at it thinking this is a stupid little competition in africa it doesn't matter i think whatever tournament it was if you tried to stage it in the middle of the season the european clubs would kick off that's not saying they would be right to but i don't think it's unique to africa i think the, the issue is broader than than that one example important though it is and it's that the clubs the clubs are too powerful they're too self-obsessed and europe is considered the be-all and end-all in a way that is really unhealthy. And I agree with everything that Ahmed had to say in his email, apart from the final sentence, but there are a couple of words within it which illustrate potentially where the problem is coming from because he referred to a biennial chat and that is another consideration, that not only is this a competition that comes in the middle of the European season, but it does so every two years so that is why it becomes the focus of these conversations because rather than a euro which is every four years copper america which is every, every three months. year yeah. in, in a more convenient time slot that that afcon comes in 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 this, this afcon was supposed to be in the summer every, wasn't it yeah. it was delayed yeah. so they, so, they have yeah. changed it Point they have made. changed but, it but, but the, fa- the fact that it's every two still, years yeah. is right and is and is probably to be honest is probably a bit excessive if we're talking about if we all accept the idea that, that there is more than a kernel of truth or at least a kernel of truth in in the fact that the calendar is too busy then staging a continental championship every two years is one of the things that can probably go there, there is an argument that CAF needs the money from yeah from biannual or biennial, whichever it is, AFCONs to sustain itself, to invest in Mm. the game in Africa. And that is a valid argument and you would have to find a way around it. Once again, maybe the easiest solution there is for more of the money that is generated in Western Europe by football, a lot of it by African players, because they, you know, if you look at the the list of players who are at, at AFCON at the moment, those are players that people are paying to watch. You know, they the African players enrich our game enormously. Yeah. The game enormously. I mean, it's not ours, is it? It doesn't belong to anybody. The They enrich the game enormously. They they are driving so at least a portion of that revenue. So maybe some of it should be redirected to Africa. Maybe UEFA doesn't need to have massive cash reserves. Maybe some of that should go to Africa to make up for not playing Afton once every two years. It is a bit of a shame, to be honest, that one of the things that Arsene Wenger's nonsensical idea to make the World Cup every two years is going to do is make it much harder to have a sensible, mature, adult conversation about what we should do with the continental tournaments. The idea, I think, of aligning them all so that they, the Euros, the Copa America and AFCON and possibly the Asian Championship, I'm not entirely sure, 
all happen at the same time or at least in the same summer i think has a lot of merit mm. it's not perfect because you can make a case that um that the proper america and afcon particularly would suffer from being held at the same time as the euros but there are ways around that you could you could hold them all at different bits of different bits of the summer um that will be lost completely because it'll because the whole plan is going to be will end up being rejected because ultimately no one's going to agree to play the world cup every two years but there there is some sense in saying let's run all of these international competitions at the same time even if funnily enough in both south south america and africa that gives you a bit of a problem with the weather can i offer an alternative suggestion to that in that if you were to tear up the football calendar and start again, you probably wouldn't approach it from the position that you were going to play intensively for 10 months of the year and not at all for two months. We effectively get, in Europe, 10 weeks between the Champions League final and the start of the next domestic season. That is the window between seasons and it is that way because it has ever been thus but why why Cricket. can we not have that's why but, but they yeah that's why it was but the two seasons now massively overlap cricket is pretty much a year-round sport anyway could we not look at possible solutions in which we had a from our northern hemisphere point of view a five-slash-six-week break in the summer and a break in the winter. And that those windows were used to accommodate international tournaments so that they could be played at the convenience of the hemisphere in which they were being staged and the weather conditions, the prevailing climate at the time. And that we had an adult conversation, we sat down and we perhaps organised it in a way in that, say, for example, you had a slightly longer break, a six-week break during the European summer, if that's when the World Cup or the Euro was being staged. And you had a slightly longer break in our winter to accommodate international tournaments or a winter World Cup if it was falling in that window. Why do we... If, we, if we're going to take 10 weeks off from domestic football every year, why does it have to be 10 weeks in one block? But it's not but 10 I, weeks, is it? It's, it's, it's six. About a fortnight, yeah. And, and, and sometimes even less. If you get, if for example, you get to the, to the championship playoff final and lose it, you have a month off. Yeah. Four weeks because championship clubs will come back for preseason at the end of June. But that's how it is now, Hugh. What I'm saying if, is if we really thought long and hard about the compromise and how, if you're going to say to CAF, Look, we appreciate absolutely that the Africa Cup of Nations is every bit as important as the Euro is. And some of the language that has been used around it is very, very unfortunate. I think Ian Wright spoke uh, incredibly well about this at the back end of, of last year. But it's not two times as important. You, you're doing it twice for every Euro. But if we were to rearrange the calendar so that once every four years the Africa Cup of Nations could be staged in the January February time slot that it usually occupies with absolutely no bashing of heads over player availability 
because there was a break in the domestic calendars built in to accommodate it, then would that be a compromise to say, there you go, you've got free run once every four years at that window and everybody knows where they stand. Likewise, with a Euro every four years in our summer window. And we dispense with this idea that the, the break in the domestic calendar is during the Northern Hemisphere summer. Why does it, it need to keep going on like that? It's interesting that, that if you did that and said you kind of have the, the Euro in the summer, the, the Northern Hemisphere summer, and the, the Afcon in the Euro, Northern Hemisphere winter once every four years, and then the World Cup obviously once every four years, it's interesting that what Conmebol would do would just be to play a Cop America in every single <laughs> available space. <laughs> We've got two. We've got two, two weeks. You would have two a year. They would do two Copper Americas a year. I suppose just just to, just to finish my my point is that for you know say for example you would have a six week break every other year in the European summer to accommodate a World Cup or a Euro, and then you would flip that and you would have the longer break in our winter every other year to accommodate <sighs> tournaments that would sit better in that time slot my, my why instinct, can't we be a bit more fluid my instinct is that yes i see i see your point completely i think it's probably slightly too complicated you, there's, there's broadcast deals and stuff to figure out it's it, it may it may throw in an extra level of complication that that football is just not prepared to to tolerate or to handle but you are you are right and this actually brings us on to the kind of the broader the broader eurocentrism what's a winter world cup not it's not yeah. every world every world cup in europe for south americans is a winter yeah. world cup because it's in the other hemisphere that's the the nature of the way the world works similarly what's a mid-season world cup that depends when your season ends mm. and we talked about it last year or two years ago now the the idea that there was an opportunity within the pandemic for football to realign itself so that it would it would handle the Qatar world cup in a, in a way that it, it isn't going to be able to do with what with the sort of the compromise they've concocted where what the, the players are going to go on the Sunday or the Monday maybe from Europe and then join up with their international squads and the first game will be on the Saturday which is I mean, interestingly that, in, in, the, in, in the way that you've described it Steve which again has merit if we were to start from nothing and, and yeah, to yeah. try and build it up but the, the the problem would be that you would often have so much of a squeezed part even though you're elongating it to be able to squeeze them in you might have that situation being felt each time and and you know what you know what international managers would say and you know you know what what any any kind of failing international team would use as an excuse they didn't have enough time in the build-up to the tournament to be able to kind of get their cohesion right and, and things like that so given that it's such a an s show i've got enough enough editing to do so let's just say s show with the way that it's trying to sort itself out around the qatar world cup wouldn't we just have a Qatar World Cup happening each and every time we try and squeeze these in? Again, perfect world, panacea, completely understand. I but think the football doesn't allow itself that clarity of thought. I think that there is, there is, a, there's a lot of merit to what Steve's saying. He's quite right. It would dilute the Eurocentrism. It would accept that for the first time in a kind of structured, organisational way that football is global rather than a a thing that Europe has given to the rest of the world, which is ultimately how it's perceived and it's why it's structured as it is with Europe at its centre. It's not just that Europe is where all the money is and where all the power is. It's partly that Europe still sees itself as, well, this is kind of our thing, so you have to fit in around us. And that was true in 1910. But I think there's probably enough time elapsed now that we can say, look, this is something that that belongs to the world and we have to structure it in such a way that that it works for the world. 
I see the merit in Steve's argument. I do think it would be easier to say the World Cup schedule is 2022, 2026, 2030, blah, blah, blah. That means that the intervening two years, there are, there is a summer of continental championships and the AFCON, the Copa America and the Euro all run in the same summer, not necessarily at the same time. And maybe we need to, to tweet when seasons start and finish around those to give them all time. They, they'd have to overlap to some extent, but there's no reason why you couldn't have, a set, you know, the, the, the final of the Euro the final of the Copper America and the final of the Afghan, all on separate days, all in different bits of the summer. And they would all get their moment in the sun and perhaps you would get, get that sense of there is a lot of football this summer. And then obviously, and this is important, the other years that are left, the spare ones, you get a Women's World Cup, which has a summer to itself, which is crucial. And you get Women's Continental Championships, which have a summer to themselves on, on the same lines. You, so you are giving all of the competitions, the continental competitions, equal status, and you're giving them equal status across the genders, which is which is important. That all makes perfect sense. And, and as a Western European who likes a bit of time off in the summer, that would suit me just fine. But uh, uh, does that not retain some degree of Eurocentricism because you're effectively dictating that international tournaments be staged when it best suits us in terms of the climate, you would be limiting the nation, you would be limiting the countries that could stage AFCON effectively if it had to be in that window. You would, and that's a fair point. I would say that as the continent with the worst weather, we should be indulged. <laughs> yeah, what? The, um, not the money, but the worst weather. Yeah, like, I'm not. I'm not been I'm, suffering I'm, long enough. I'm not being funny, but like I'm not taking lessons on what a terrible winter is from Brazilians. Do you know what I mean? Like you know, come to come to the north of England and see what it's like from September to May, and then we'll talk about who's got a rough winter. I, I mean, I was at, I did the Brazil World Cup, which was a winter World Cup, and I was on the beach when I wasn't working. You know, the, it was warm enough still to go... still got tan marks from his flip-flops. <laughs> it was warm enough to go to the beach. I mean, admittedly, I was in Salvador and, and Recife, which is in the north near, near the equator, so it was it's colder down south in Porto Alegre and, and, places, and Curitiba and places like that. But the it wasn't... I mean, in Sao Paulo and Rio, it wasn't cold in any way. So, yeah, there is an issue. There's a bigger issue in Africa because I think certain countries, Cameroon being the, the, the most immediate examples, can't host it in the summer because mm. of climatic conditions that is that is eurocentric there's no other no other way of putting it i just don't know if there is the flexibility within the calendar to say it would be nice to think you could say actually do you know what once every maybe ideally, this is a compromise i think i know where you're going is ideally you... once every two world cups or, but probably more like once every three once every four we're going to do a winter world cup because yeah. that represents half of the globe yeah. and they matter it would be nice to think that, that that would be possible. I don't know whether football has the flexibility built into it to say we are happy to rearrange the seasons what once every 12 years say. Yeah. Or, or, or to say, well, if, if AFCON does accept that it's once every four years, that once every four years you create that window so that there's no conflict. In, inherent, yeah, in, that's inherent, true. Inherent you could in do it, this... yeah, you wouldn't have to be all the time, but you'd say, all right, look, once every four years, six-week break in our winter to accommodate an AFCON which gets a free hit and there's no issue with player availability and clashes with, with other football going on at the same time. So is this, is this a compromise as we have tried to illustrate it or is that, or is that inherently a, a concession to a lesser 
stakeholder because that's that, that's the other thing to think about and if you translate it to the to the conversations and, and steve you mentioned about ian wright and sebastian allo was, was mentioned by ahmed in his in his email about being asked are you are you going to go and play for ivory coast in in when you could be playing for ajax during this month and he said yes of course i am and it's disgraceful that 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 my possible appearance for my country in a continental tournament is being belittled so much by what is inherent in your question so so is is there even though Rory you said that there was there was no racism at the heart of the scheduling issue as described thus far is there an imbalance between how eurocentric football fans journalists so therefore the majority of the coverage that we read and indeed might go global is there an inherent belittling of the experience that african players have playing for their country because they're not considered to be the same standard as the European countries. Just to be clear, the reason that I think there's no racism within it is because I think that if it was, if they decided to stage the Euros, the Euro under 21s in the middle of the season, the clubs would say, well, our players aren't going. Yes, no, well, no, they, no, I, I completely, there was, I, there was I no lack of clarity in, in what you said. Yeah, I so. don't think they're doing it because they, they, they think African football doesn't matter. I think there are a couple of mitigating things and Steve's right, Ian Wright spoke really well about it. The question asked to Halea was ridiculous. As I think there were other, a couple of others who were asked similar questions and they make no sense. The, do you think, do you think, that, that, I think that the question, fact that, would the question have been couched in that way to Sebastian Allaire if the tournament was once every four years? That's what I was going to say. I think that part of it is that because AFCON's come around quite a lot or seem to, although not as often as Copper Americas, <laughs> um, the, there is a sense of... I don't change my bed sheets as often as Copper America's come. <laughs> no, but to be, to be fair, it's happened with the, with the Copper as well, that because they've had these... I mean, they've played about 38 in the last four years, and or it's like 2015, 2019. They had like that run of the 2015, 2016, 2019, 2021. There's been, there were four in six years. And because of that, that has decreased, I think the perceived importance of the competition yeah. within the eyes of, of European clubs. And let's not forget... Not to Lionel Messi. <laughs> not to Lionel Messi, but, the, but let's not forget that the, the, club, the club's part of this argument is that they're paying the wages. They are paying the players. Yes. They're the ones who enable all this, the whole circus to go around because there's so much money in European football. So it, we shouldn't pretend that they don't deserve a voice. Obviously, they shouldn't be able to say you can't go. Watford have clearly been a bit ridiculous with Nigeria and Emmanuel Dennis. But there is no question to me that if they didn't play the AFCON every two years, that the clubs would be a bit more amenable to it. That, that without a shadow of a doubt, is, is relevant. And, and the Emmanuel Dennis situation, though, is an interesting one that shines a further light, is that not only do you have the situation of it being once every two years, but Emmanuel Dennis wasn't in Nigeria's original 37-man squad <laughs> for AFCON, but was added to a 40-man squad after that announcement. So that is the other thing that factor that comes into it, and you can see why clubs are a little bit prickly about it, is the sheer number of players who are being called into a provisional squad and potentially being made unavailable or that they're having to prepare to be unavailable for. So to off offer the devil's advocate point for Watford concerning Emmanuel Dennis, you can see that having not been named in their initial 37-man squad for the tournament, they can feel a little bit like, whoa, whoa hang on a second. It's a bit late now to be getting a call, call up for him 
as you expand your squad even further. But that's, because that's, you're talking about squad sizes that are 50% larger than anything that you would ever see for a Euro. Yeah, that, and that's interesting because that's partly a consequence of it happening during the season when yes, course, things yeah. are very much uh, in flux, including the form of players. And Emmanuel Dennis has scored a few recently. What, he's got eight, nine goals this season? Yeah. So he's a, he is a legitimate yeah. consideration at time of AFCON for being in the Nigeria squad because, because of his form and form that might have been... Uh, might have informed the the decision only in the last kind of like five to six and, prior to it. And, but so COVID plays a part in that because obviously bigger squads that did happen in in the Euro. But but for yes, it's it's a bit imbalanced. Oh, so I just did that emoji thing where yes, that was that was that was in, an immediate me, sign like, for me. Huh? Imbalance, emoji. imbalance. Uh, yeah, and, and before you know the the obvious counterpoints to the size of the squads is that 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 isn't thirty seven elite level European based mm. players who are being I, I, under, I understand that that's that that's depth squad and as, as Hugh says you know count you know couching your preparations a little bit in terms of who's available when they're they're required to be so but but in that situation you can see why Watford felt as though they might be in a position of strength to say sorry yeah he's not available the, and and Watford were, were kind of technically correct and and it was worth trying from their point of view but it, it's less than ideal that that a player who clearly wants to represent his country is placed in that position. And that's what you need to do. That's what needs to be resolved effectively. And I think that's why if you had that bigger window in the wind, if you had a window to accommodate it, you wouldn't have those issues. But But the clubs, the clubs would simply say, well, hang on, what are we doing for those six weeks? Oh, I'm sure they'd find a way of making money, Rory. That's that, that is true. To an extent you could, you could use that month, those six weeks, if you wanted to keep playing, to play cup competitions, yeah, you could yeah. say, right, we're going to run the League Cup, yeah, or we're going to run the FA Cup, or the we, you know the first three rounds of the FA Cup, and we you refer just you to your... SBM two six four yeah. from just last week. But, but the, the, would those would those things that you were saying that Watford being have, had a legitimate leg to stand on in terms of the the regulations surrounding it, but preventing a player who wanted to join up with his with his country, and that's that's the that's the kind of the difficult conflict in that you've got the feeling, the emotion of the player who wants to play for his country, but rules and regulations that might actually prevent him from doing so. Would that be a situation that genuinely applies or would be applied by a club or would a player have to fight so much to be able to play for his country in any other circumstance than an Africa Cup of Nations? Because I think that's what Sebastian Allaire, that's what Ian Wright have been saying about the way that not only these things take place in the first place, but also how they're covered. There seems to be a sense that there is a an understanding of the legitimacy of a club preventing a player from playing for his country because the reg- the regulations might allow them to do that, but not for any other situation that is similarly taking place with other players playing for other countries in other continents. No, I think they. I think I, as I say, I think they would try if they would if they were given loopholes to try and stop players going to the endless parade of South American World Cup qualifying. They would, and they do. They, they they do what they can to prevent players go, going within reason, um, and that's for a couple of weeks. You'll see it in the in the run up to twenty twenty six. There will be a massive complaint from European clubs that South America is running a whole World Cup qualifying place to eliminate one of Bolivia and Venezuela when they could just play each other over two legs. They could play, Bolivia and Venezuela could play each other a hundred times to see which team should go to the World Cup. And that would be a more efficient way of getting the South American qualifier sorted out. Unless Bolivia or Venezuela have players who play in, in uh, Europe, Western yeah. European League. But the, <laughs> so the issue I think is not is not unique. It's not that it doesn't apply to Afcon. It's definitely a thing. 
but I don't think it only applies to Afghan. I think it's the same with with anything that's not in Europe, because the way that Europe sees football is as its own thing, that it has sort of lent out to the rest of the world. And you'll, you see it a bit, to be fair, with um, with things like the Gold Cup and North American tournaments, that there's a sense of, well, who cares about the Gold Cup? And, or what, you know, what, they're playing some weird tournament in, in Canada. I don't, yeah, apparently has to go, we're not very happy about it. You see it all the time. And it's to do with football seeing its, seeing its horizons as being yeah. defined by the Mediterranean and the Baltic. That's That's where football thinks it exists and anything outside that is by definition liminal and not particularly relevant that's the thing that needs to change is that f- football is a global game and it has to start thinking like a global global game the problem is that all of the money and the power rests in western europe and that's the imperialistic view isn't it and that's the thing that's going to be difficult to shake is yeah. that the, the the clubs as you've pointed out rory they they pay the wages that uh, players come from all over the world to play in in the top divisions in Western Europe. Uh, that is that's good for those clubs because they are cherry picking the very best talent. But you'd imagine that that is also good in many ways for the the countries that they have come from because that's inspiring players in their homelands to try and a- achieve what their their heroes have achieved. You know, Mo Salah winning a Champions League for Liverpool is great for Liverpool, but you'd imagine it's great for Egyptian football as well in terms of inspiring the next generation of players to try and do likewise. Imperialistic is a great word to describe how Western Europe sees sees the rest of the world in terms of football. Think about how clubs and leads talk about other countries and pre-season tours and winning fan bases and establishing kind of beachheads in, in different territories. It is to do with conquering them. That is what they want to do. They want to conquer China. They want to conquer Africa. They want to conquer Malaysia. Anywhere that... They, I mean, to be fair, it applies to the US. They want to conquer the US and Canada. There is there is an imperialistic mindset about all of these. about all, Certainly in England, about the Premier League as a whole and the clubs in general. And I would say about the, the, the elite clubs, at least, on the continent as well. That they see other countries, other continents as places to be won. But is that also not reflected in the international game in terms of uh, not the individual players that make up the teams, but in terms of FIFA and its structure? So you're you're expanding the World Cup in the future to try and uh, introduce more countries that are, yes, you are globalising the game. And and, and what we've just said about making sure that football is for all is is an important part of that. Um, if you're talking about the aesthetic level of it, but in terms of genuinely the not so cynical, probably more true than we would like it to be methods of FIFA and their voting structure and how things are constructed for FIFA, who are a Western European operation run by Western Europeans, they are seeking, are they not, to expand the game to areas who will then shore up the structure that they lead. So even in the international game, there are elements, are there not, about Western Europe attempting to give the impression that they are globalising the game, but instead just shoring up, providing a much stronger foundation to the Western Europeans who lead FIFA, leading it into the future. Well, I think the problem with FIFA almost is that it, it is it is global. And that's why you see this this tension between FIFA and the clubs in terms of the World Cup, that... Obviously, it's in the interest of the vast majority of the 209 member states of FIFA to have a biennial World Cup, obviously. It means they get more money. That's what's in their interest. FIFA is Eritrea and Kazakhstan and, I don't know, Turks and Kaikos 
have got as much power in FIFA as Germany in terms of the vote. They they, make, they don't have the lobbying capability, obviously, but in terms of the vote, voting mm -hmm. to where to put the World Cup or when to stage the World Cup, it's you know one member, one vote, and I think that is that's fair and that's as it should be. It is unfortunately vulnerable to corruption. That's the problem, and also you question, and I think it's a fair question, how how much should you know, the, the FIFA representative for New Zealand have the right to determine what happens to the Champions League. It's nothing to do with them. So I think the, 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 the FIFA's not perfect. I'm not saying for a second that it is. Obviously, it's about as far from perfect as you can get. But that in terms of its... <laughs> nice terms caveat, of its, thanks. <laughs> in terms you know, of they its... might put that on their masthead. <laughs> FIFA's not perfect. Rory Smith, football it, journalist. The, in um, fact, he continued. The um, it, no, it would be. I'm not saying FIFA's perfect. That's <laughs> what it would be. We talked about misquotes on misquotes on Twitter last week, so maybe that would be another good one. Yeah, but I think the problem is that FIFA does does have a have a slightly more global perspective, and that's why it's often it runs contrary to what the, what the, the clubs and what the leads in in Western Europe want, because FIFA's loyalty is beholden to all of its member states and that's you know you can win elections if you appeal to asia and africa and that is in one sense a very good thing because the game is global but in the other sense in another sense it does make it a fragile slightly susceptible process final point before we go about um whether these and 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 i admit and i take the point about it it not being afcon exclusive but if we're talking because it's the week that afcon has begun uh, we're talking about something that is often marginalized in the way that it is covered because of location because of broadcast coverage and because often are what is described as being football that isn't great beyond the two, three, four contenders. And I, I know, Rory, you've written a piece which suggests that there are more like eight to ten contenders this time around. But is is there often a, a knock on AFCON which is implicitly biased against the quality of football, saying why are we having this huge upheaval to our season, our Premier League season, when they're going off and playing a, a, a continental competition, which frankly does not even come close to the kind of football they are playing for their clubs and would be were they not uh, away playing Cameroon as is now. That, that is none of our business, though. H how people perceive the quality of, of the football at the tournament is, is not as relevant, I don't think, to the discussion as w the other things we've already spoken about. I don't know if anybody's watched any of the Copper America, but, you know... <laughs> Or even like the early stages of the Euros, like which, which yeah. Copper America? <laughs> Any of them? The one, the one a couple of weeks ago, not the one a month ago. Yeah, the sta Steve's right. The, stand the standard of the football is irrelevant because the standard of the standard of the football is secondary all across the world to how much you are emotionally invested in it. So it might not be as good. I suspect that if you end up in the by the time you get to the quarterfinals, you'll have eight pretty good teams, and in, in in the last eight of Afcon, there, there won't be. There might be one surprise package who's kind of not fluked their way there, but kind of ridden their luck a little bit but, and but, sat deep But the deep point is that that happens, that happens in, everywhere. in every, every every competition. Yeah. And, and it doesn't mean it I'm means trying, any less. The point I'm trying to make is that it, it has within it aspects that are in every single competition, little club, international, everything. And yet for some reason there are, there may well be examples of where it's picked out as being a crucial thing and therefore something upon which we should judge it. And that might be slightly different compared to other competitions. Like nobody's bringing up how, how poor the Copper America was in its group stages because Lionel Messi was playing in it, for well, example. To be fair, no one's bringing up how poor the Copper America was in its group stages because it was on really late at night so no one was watching it. That's, that's 
that's the reality. It, it was on really late at night during the Euros, so nobody watched it. The same thing, yeah, you're right, the, but the same thing applies to people who watch mid-table games from other from, from non-Premier League leagues and use that to say, well, this league is rubbish. But what they mean is, I, I don't have any interest in this league, so, I, so all of this just looks like people running around after a ball to me, which, which you don't have once you're emotionally invested in something. And, and we've, we've pointed out that the elite level of club football, in Europe in particular, is, is far and above that of yeah. international football. So, you know, that, that, that applies across, across the board. Yes, Sadio Mane will play in higher quality games for Liverpool in the Premier League and the Champions League than probably the majority of games he plays for, for Senegal at AFCON. But that, that, doesn't, that isn't a legitimate reason to bash the competition no and and equally to use the liverpool example jordan henderson will play in higher quality games for liverpool this season than he did for england in the euros last year so yeah the the standard of it is irrelevant i think the 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 greater issue is that europe doesn't care about it because it's not in europe and the fact that i said that would be the final point but this is the final point the the emotional investment that the players have in their their countries because of what we talked about with the imperialistic nature and the colonial past and and everything like that is there is there a sense that to them it might actually matter more because they're having to face this judgment back home or this implicit racism or bias or whatever they feel um, is part of the way that the coverage has 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 either turned against them or made them feel uncomfortable is is there an element that actually that produces a greater bond with their nation with their country and therefore enhances, because we are able to see those stories being told through those players, enhances our enjoyment, their sense of pride in something like AFCON because of all those things put together. I don't know if it's to do with the criticism of the tournament or the, the slight disdain for the tournament. I, I suspect it's to do with what Ahmed in the in the original email said about the colonial past. I think that's probably mm. a huge part of it, that, that these are young countries and the pride of representing that young country, of establishing your country on a global stage, even if it's only fleeting, is probably something they, they feel very keenly. And the other thing that I think is really relevant, Ahmed mentioned that this is often, you know, for a lot of players, if you look at like the Comoros team in in this year's AFCON, I think one of them was born in the, one player, Ben, who plays for Red Star Belgrade, was born in the Comoros. There's a couple from Mayotte, which is an, an island nearby, which is a, fr- a French territory, and everybody else was born in Marseille, Nantes or Paris they are playing for the for the land of their parents and their grandparents that i think would be an extremely emotional thing um and the other thing is that a lot of these players have spent a lot of time in their lives not at home mm. and i think to go home and show how much your country means to you is a chance that none of them will want to will want to turn down i'd imagine it's giving something back as well yeah it, whether it's for you to your homeland or the homeland of your, your parents or your grandparents is that you have made a success of your career and this is an opportunity to pay it forward well you see but you see it after they you know after i mean it everyone kind of does it now but it was it was certainly the african and south american players initially after winning the champions league who would go and get the flag hmm. and now you see like sergio ramos goes and gets the andalusian flag which I mean, fine. Maybe he's really proud of being Andalusian. I'm sure he is. Lots of Andalusians are, but it was Senegalese fan flags and Ghanaian flags and Nigerian flags and the flags of of the North African nations that that were the first really to be that. That was what made that a thing. And then a little bit of kind of Brazil and Argentina and um, I always remember Edin Dzeko did the Bosnian flag. As yeah, well. Eastern Europe. It's, yeah. it's it, again. Bosnia is quite a good example. It's younger countries. It's mm. countries who are still 
who still want to make their voices heard in the world. Wherever, They've often risen out of a very difficult yeah. situation surrounding areas. Yeah. Wherever they're from, whatever part of the world they're, they're located, in a way that I think the countries of Western Europe in particular probably don't really understand anymore because we, we, have, a, we have a different, not better, not worse, but different approach to nationality in a lot of ways. And I think we don't feel it as keenly as maybe people from younger countries do. I don't know. It's not, it's not really for any of us to speak for how African players m must feel, but that would be my best guess at, at, at the fact that it, it means far more to, it, I suspect it means far more to them than we, than we really understand. I think there is, uh, after all that excellent discussion, I think there's one thing that um, any listener uh, should try and retain from this conversation. Um, with, with everything that we've learned, with everything that we've said, for all the corners that we've gone down, the cul-de-sacs that we've reached and turned back from, this is the most important and enduring thing you should clasp to your heart and remember, don't ever ask to be a buffalo. So thank you to, to all of you who have fallen down at that particular hurdle in the past. Ahmed, your email was excellent, but as Stephen said, it is the last thing. It is the last thing that undermined everything that came before. Keep your correspondence. Never ask for Buffalo status within it. To setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you, Stephen and to Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Should I send the beer mat that I scribbled the uh, the plan for the the splits in terms of the, the the break footballing domestic breaks to FIFA? Do you think they'll want to see it, or should I just shred it? I think it would go in their giant folder marked "Good ideas had by other people that we're going to ignore." <laughs> the, uh, the if if it's on the back of uh, a beer mat. Um, I would like some sort of uh, graphical representation because as you were saying it, I really needed, to, or at least I felt like I needed to write something down. Had this, an this... urge to draw a large box. Oh, I thought you were going to say, this is a man who had an idea three pints deep over Christmas. <laughs> well, if it's on the back of a beer mat, it's most likely to be that.